Hi, this is Pierce Boyne, the Digital Media Editor for the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy, or JNPT. This podcast episode is part of a new series where Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy special interest groups talk with JNPT authors about their research, unique and unexpected findings, and how to translate those findings to clinical practice. In this episode, the Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group is interviewing Drs. Jenna Zajac and Terry Ellis. They will be discussing their article set to appear in the October 2021 issue of JNPT, titled, Are Mobile Persons with Parkinson's Disease Necessarily More Active? In addition to being an author on this manuscript, I'd also like to highlight that Dr. Terry Ellis is a JNPT associate editor. Of course, she was not involved in the review of this manuscript. I'm very excited to hear what the authors have to say. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I'm part of the podcast team of the DDSIG. We here at the DDSIG are excited to partner with the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy to bring you an interview with two of the authors of their newly published article, Are Mobile Persons with Parkinson's Disease? necessarily more active. Specifically, we will be talking with the lead author, Jenna Zajac. Jenna is a PhD student in the Rehab Science Program at Boston University. And a little later, we will bring in and introduce Dr. Terry Ellis, but we're going to start with Jenna. So Jenna, tell me a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis before we delve right into the um, paper. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I am going into my third year um, of the PhD program. So I'm still kind of like finishing up classes, um, basically working through like my comprehensive exams. And right now my main focus is on research. Um, So I, you know, had this paper um, working on another clinical trial right now that I'm uh, leading at BU um, that we're doing a multi-site trial with another university as well, um, looking at more at music and walking. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's typically a lot of what I'm doing right now is mostly just delving into a lot of the research components, getting things up and running, um, a lot of data analysis, and then writing. Exciting. And um, so this paper, your lead author on, so explain a little bit about the genesis of this paper and, and how it came about. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as physical therapists, we often ask about a person's, you know, participation in the community and just daily activities that they, you know, are engaged in. Um, and we tend to equate this with an increase in physical activity or an increase in the amount of walking that someone's doing. Mm-hmm. And there's been work in older adults that's kind of looked at this relationship between so participation, being out in the community and walking activity and has seen that they are related. So the more someone's active in the community or just mobile and getting out, um, the more walking activity they also tend to display. Mm -hmm. So 
in working with people with Parkinson's disease and for how important walking activity is in this population, we kind of wanted to look at their, that relationship more closely. Um, there's been a little bit of research here and there on it, but there's not too much. So we wanted to delve a little deeper um, to see what we could find there. So that's kind of how it kind of came up. Okay. And, and so how did you do it specifically? Yeah. So at first, when we started looking at this relationship, we used um, the, the construct of life space mobility. So basically, life space mobility is looking at how a person navigates their home and community, whether it's actively, so like through walking or passively via transportation, so like driving a car. Um, so we use in our study the life space assessment tool, um, which is a tool that's been used to capture life space mobility in clinical practice. Um, so it generates a total score, the life space assessment, um, and it looks at kind of these different levels of life space. So it starts from level one, which would be like inside your bedroom. Mm-hmm. And then each progressive level goes beyond the t- or up to beyond the town, which is mm-hmm. level five. So, you know, the higher the level, the farther the distance from home. Um, and it ends up summing into this total life space score. We'll get a little bit more into that measure in a little bit, but broader picture. So how many people were included in this study and where were they from? Right. So we had 69 people that were included in this study and it was um, taken from a larger clinical trial that we are currently conducting at our center, um, looking at just walking in people with Parkinson's disease. So it's across through Boston area, as well as Washington, from Washington University in St. Louis. Okay. Um, and so you had that cohort of people with this data, right? Looking at their life space mobility. Did you correlate it to anything? Like, how did you know what they were actually doing? Sure. We had life space mobility to capture kind of just that participation level construct of like getting out in the community, but to equate that to like the walking activity to understand like what component of that was walking. Um, we used the stepwatch activity monitor, which is just that the ankle monitor that they would wear that captures like steps per day and intensity of walking and such. So we're able to kind of look at a correlation between that walking activity with life space mobility scores. Okay. So the, that life space assessment, mm-hmm. right, asks people to look at the previous four weeks. When did they wear the monitor? So this was all baseline data. So it was taken, so they came in for their baseline assessment and they filled out this life space assessment um, in general, and then they went home with the device at that point after that. And they wore it for the next seven days. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And were they being enrolled in a study with an intervention? Yes. So the larger clinical trial had two different arms. It was just two different ways of administering like a walking program, um, like a mobile health versus just a typical like paper exercise program. Um, But this was all collected more at baseline. So before any of the intervention had started. Okay. So that was my question. So the, the, the participants knew that they were in a walking study, but they hadn't started the intervention yet. Correct. And the participants, what degree, what severity of Parkinson's disease did they have? Mild to moderate. Okay. So nobody who was, um, 
greatly impacted in terms of their mobility. Correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. And what kind of numbers did you get for step counts over the course of a week or average per day or whatever? I believe the mean was about 7,600 steps per day. Um, so, so fairly active, but it would vary. I mean, you'd see some that were very low and then you'd see some outliers like way up there, you know, and like right over 10,000 type of thing, but 7,600 was like, was the mean. Okay. And how did you decide if somebody was like active or sedentary? Cause you could, you sort of divided people into those two groups, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we had gone on like previous literature that was out there looking at, you know, active versus uh, sedentary. So we are kind of, we're like more splitting it up based on the literature that's already been done um, that has looked at the kind of that split, I believe. I don't know if that was specifically in Parkinson's disease. I think it was more in just older adult population, but um, that had been what's out there right now, um, kind of looking at the two different levels. So we were that's how we kind of decided on that split of the active versus sedentary. And you used a, a number, a value of 5,000 steps per day. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. So anybody who walked more than 5,000 steps per day was considered active and anyone who walked less was considered sedentary? Correct. Okay. All right. So you had that data and then you had this life um, mobility outcome measure. And so let's just break that down a little bit. So we know it's five levels, starting with how people are moving in the bedroom. And then where's level two? What is level two? So it goes from like kind of the bedroom, like inside the home area. And then it's level two would be immediately outside the home. So thinking about, you know, your garage or your driveway, kind of like right in your immediate yard area. Um, Level three is considered your neighborhood level level four is the town and then level five would be beyond your town. So one of my questions about this outcome measure, I did, I looked it up. I encourage our listeners to do the same. It seems fairly simple, but I'm wondering exactly how you administered it. So did you like read it to the people and sort of help them interpret? Like if you go to the grocery store in your town, that means this, or, or did you just kind of let them do it on their own? Yeah. When I, so when I did it, I just kind of read the prompts or the questions that were provided on the, like the form itself. I didn't really like add any, you know, explanation um, to anyone. Cause I think everyone internally too, has a little bit of a different, you know, like everyone's considers their neighborhood, something different or considers their, you know, immediately outside their home, depending on where you live and things like that. Um, so I basically just gave the, you know, blanket statement of what it would say on the form and kind of just went by what they said. Mm-hmm. I know that Boston University has a center for neuro rehab. Is this a measure that is used there? Are you aware? And we can, obviously we can ask Terry in a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I know we have used it in the study. I don't know like how much specifically therapists use it in the center itself, but yeah. Um, because, you know, we did a whole podcast on participation that was really um, very interesting and so for our listeners, if you haven't listened to that, I, I uh, highly recommend listening to it. But um, the, and this life space assessment kind of flows right into some of the stuff that we were talking about in that podcast, particularly related to actually like tracking people's movement in the community with um, 
mobile devices and GPS, which I think you talk about even in this paper and the discussion. And it would be so interesting to see also if this life space assessment could be a proxy for that, because then maybe we don't need to track everybody. But what I want to get to, which I think is going to sort of help launch us into this sort of bigger picture conversation is your results, because I think that the that the results of this study are really um, interesting and have the potential to really help clinicians to interact with their patients in a different way. So tell us about the results. Yeah. Yeah. So it was very interesting because unlike what was seen in older adults, where there was this relationship between, you know, total life space mobility and walking activity, we were not seeing that um, in people with Parkinson's disease. But when we kind of took a look more granularly, because there were pre- previous implications and other um, areas of research too, that were saying, okay, well, you know, maybe that passive means might take place more. You might see that more kind of moving beyond the neighborhood. So we're like, okay, maybe if we are looking kind of a little bit deeper and breaking apart this like total life space mobility into different components, you know, at this like neighborhood level, um, you know, maybe we'll see, you know, maybe there's something there. And we ended up finding that daily walking activity was a significant contributor uh, to mobility within the neighborhood limits. So in this mm-hmm. level one to three, some score that we basically created, but not beyond the neighborhood mm-hmm. and also not with total life space. Um, and then even breaking that down further, we wanted to see the difference in if, if there was a difference in sedentary versus active individuals. And we were finding that only at that one to three summed score at that level one to three sum score, um, there was that kind of significant difference in their mobility. And particularly there was that disproportionate um, reduction in, uh, in the total score in the score there at the level three, uh, which would be the neighborhood level. Okay. So we're going to break that down a little bit more and a little slower, I think for for our listeners. So um, if I'm understanding correctly in the older population, the research that's been done to date, right? There is a correlation between this total score and the amount of walking that they do. But in, in your participants with Parkinson's disease, you did not see that. So total score did not correlate to their amount of walking. Right. Okay. And so, and in particular that beyond the neighborhood really didn't, because we could theorize that people are getting in a car to move beyond their neighborhood or some other form of motorized transportation. Right. Okay. All right. So, so, but then when we look just more locally at how they're moving within their immediate area of their home, slash neighborhood, you saw a correlation between how they're, how much they're walking and what they report for mobility within that smaller region. So your sedentary people, they were probably reporting more activity outside of their neighborhood and then less sort of daily activity within their neighborhood. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. So we were seeing basically between active and sedentary groups, more equivalent mobility when it was kind of beyond the neighborhood. So into the town and beyond the town, um, I think the sedentary group was still a little bit less, but it was more equivalent with the, the reported mobility. Okay. And so for your active group, 
when you guys broke those down even further, right, you found that really levels one and three were kind of more indicative of people's walking behavior versus level two. Correct. Yeah. Those were the two where we were seeing more of the significant difference between the two groups. Um, And then the big, the largest difference was at that level three. So at that neighborhood level. Yeah. Which kind of makes sense. But I was a little surprised to see that level two seemed like it didn't have as much of an impact between the groups. And do you have any theories as to why that might be? Yeah, honestly, it was kind of surprising not to see it at that in-between level. Cause when we're thinking about, you know, you had the difference between the, inside the home and, you know, in the neighborhood, and then you're not seeing it um, as much immediately outside the home. Do you think it's where these people live? So, you know, if both of these centers where people are coming to are fairly urban, you know, are people living in an urban setting or maybe suburban where they'll go to their garage and get in their car and leave, or they walk around their house. Right. Right. Um, And depending on the time of year, you know, weather and whatever versus somebody rural who lives on land and might have to walk pretty far to go get their mail. That level two is almost like similar to what you were mentioning. It's almost like a kind of like a transition point too. like people inside their home. You might see a difference. Maybe people who are sedentary aren't like up and moving around their home as much, but that level two's being right outside their home, they might be going just the like capacity of getting to their car to go somewhere else or something that's very kind of moving from indoors to outdoors. And, you know, so it might be more equivalent where it's not necessarily like the end point of where people are ending up moving around. It's kind of that in between. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I, and I wonder how easy it is for people to sort of parse that out. So Jenna, I think this conversation has been really interesting and, uh, brought up a lot of questions. And I think it would be really great at this point to try to step back and look a little bit bigger picture. So as we do that, I would like to bring in Dr. Terry Ellis. And there are probably so many titles that Terry has that I'm not even going to try to really introduce her. So I'm going to let Terry tell us who she is and what she does. So welcome, Terry. Well, hey, guys, thank you for inviting me back. I am thrilled to be here. So I am a physical therapist, and I am on the faculty at Boston University, and I'm chair of the physical therapy and athletic training department there, and I also direct the Center for Neuro Rehab. So the Center for Neuro Rehab is where we have a clinical practice, and we see patients with Parkinson's disease mostly, and we also conduct research, um, mostly focused on, you know, um, some type of rehabilitation approach to improve the lives of people with Parkinson's disease. Okay. Well, fabulous. And I, and I assume you've been working with Jenna on this project. Yes, I have. So Jenna's in her third year now, and, you know, we've had this randomized control trial going on and she, uh, that, that affords us the opportunity to, um, to look at the baseline data. Mm-hmm. And to try to understand some of these participation level questions, um, you know, using the data that we're collecting as part of our trial. Yeah. All right. So one of our first questions for you, Terry, is this um, life space assessment. Is it something that you think is viable and valuable to use in the in a clinical setting? Well, that's partly, partly why we did the study, you know, to try to figure out, you know, what are we learning from this tool? Mm-hmm. What does this help us understand? You know, it's already been shown to be valid and reliable and used in, in older adults. 
Um, you know, it hasn't been used very much in Parkinson's, just, a, you know, a limited amount. But we were, you know, beyond the tool, they're just trying to wrap our heads around what's happening at the participation level. You know, what are people doing? Um, you know, and, and, and this particular tool helps us understand, like, you know, sort of how far away from the home are they going? You know, what are their excursions like? Right. And, you know, sort of intuitively, this, this you know, again, this is how Jenna started out with the explanation, like, does this mean they're more active? You know, the further away they go from right. the home, right. you know, is it, you know, can we assume that if you have a higher life space score, then you're more active? And, you know, turns out, as Jenna just nicely described, that's not the case in Parkinson's anyway, you know, so, you know, there's so many aspects to participation, you know, what, what are, what are people doing? You know, where are they going? You know, how are they getting there? You know, how, how active are they? And so this is a way for us to try to begin to, you know, to sort of peel back participation and try to understand um, a little bit more about, you know, what's going on. Yeah. You know, so participation, right? I think one of the things in our participation podcast that we sort of talked about and brought up was like, really, what is it? And, and how do we define and measure it? And you know, I thought it was interesting this this life space assessment to correlate it to steps per day because is that really participation? I mean, steps per per day is you know an activity thing, and maybe can get towards like a level of physical activity and um, maybe uh, fitness, a level of fitness, but. Does it does it really correlate, or should it really correlate to participation? So that's a really good point. I mean, what we're really trying to understand here is is more sort of the relationship between, um, you know, uh, we we want to really try to dig into the relationship between capacity and performance. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we're talking about is more performance than participation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as physical therapists, we measure capacity all the time in the clinic, right? So right. how much capacity does someone have in terms of gait speed? You know, how, you know, so a, a 10 meter walk test, a six minute walk test, you know, how, what's the kind of distance they can cover in six minutes, right? But how does that relate to what they're actually doing in day-to-day -day life? which would be more performance, right? And, you know, how does what we examine in the, in the clinic and what they can actually do um, under more kind of standardized, uh, in a standardized way, so getting at capacity, right? How does that relate to what they actually do in day-to-day -day life? And as PTs, we often think, well, geez, you know, if they have higher capacity, they must be doing more. or if I improve their capacity, they're going to do more. Right. But we don't actually measure it. Yeah. Now, rarely in clinical practice. Yeah. The One of the other things about the, the things that we're measuring in the clinic is we're measuring one thing in a very targeted manner, right? So they might have a gate speed in the clinic when there are no obstacles, no other attentional demands. You know, it's a safe environment. 
it, it does that how does that really relate to how somebody you know walks at the mall in terms of their speed of walking at the mall right it could be totally different right right you know out in the real world you know you've got environmental constraints you've got you know whatever you know you're thinking about whatever your goals are what your what other activities you're engaged in you know so uh, you know so so you know the relationship between capacity and performance is really not all that strong, mm-hmm. you know? And so then the question is, well, what do we care about in terms of performance or participation? What do we want to measure? And, you know, partly we, we might want to measure sort of performance, like how active is somebody in everyday life under normal circumstances, you know, performance, what do they actually do? Right. What do they actually do in everyday life? Right. Um, participation could be more like what life roles, what life activities are they engaged in? Right. You know, yeah. work, play, travel, you know, whatever, whatever they are. Right. And so we, you know, this this life space tool, you know, where, where does that fit? You know, what's that actually measuring? And, you know, we might leaning more towards, you know, performance, mm-hmm. you know, sort of what you know, where, you know, how far away from home are they actually uh, going? It doesn't tell you actually what they're doing. Right. Did you think about at all about um, looking at that, this life space assessment in relation to quality of life? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Jenna's actually working on an analysis now looking at that relationship uh, between um, life space, the, the step activity monitor data and PD, the PDQ 39. Yeah. You know, so particularly the mobility domain. Right. You know, so what, what are you, how far along are you there, Jenna, with that analysis? We're moving through it. Uh, so I, based- <laughs> <laughs> but n- nothing to report yet. Is that, is that what you're saying? It is, it is very interesting. And I will say, um, you know, a lot of it does show some clear delineations when you're thinking about capacity and performance. And it's interesting how quality of life fits in with that, I will say. So it's, I think, you know, quality of life, you know, again, it's like, this is a tricky subject, you know, the PDQ 39, what do you, if you look at the mobility domain, what are you actually measuring? You know, can you carry shopping bags, right? Can you, um, but part, some of it is, I don't know, can you walk, is it a half a mile or a mile or something like that? You know, so, so even those two things, right? Can you walk a certain distance? Well, that's probably more performance, and then can you carry shopping bags? Well, maybe that's participation, um, you know, but quality of life, you know, how, how does that sit? You right. know, the quality of life, the whole tool, maybe when you bring together the physical aspects of things, the emotional, cognitive and social aspects, you know, across the whole eight domains, yeah. then might give you some indication of overall quality of life. Um, but you would think because you're measuring things in everyday life, right? There would be a strong correlation between the life space tool and the PDQ 39, the mobility, the mobility section of the PDQ. Yeah. The mobility section. So that's one of the things that we're going to explore. Yeah. 
I just want to get back to a little bit back to the paper and um, that life space assessment. So I'm curious what you think. Do you think it's worth clinicians trying it? I mean, it's not a huge thing to administer. I think it's because it's quick and easy. It gives you some information. Mm-hmm. But I, I think we, we you know, that what the paper suggests is you should take caution in how you interpret it. Right. Just because somebody has a higher total life score doesn't mean they're more active. Yeah. So, and also that, and this might be more of a question for Jenna, but the using the, that the levels one through three, is that something that has been done in other research or did you guys sort of come up with like, let's look at this more neighborhood level versus outside the neighborhood level? Yeah. So I, it actually, it hasn't been done. There's been like prior research in older adults has just kind of alluded to this um, with that relationship, like, oh, possibly beyond the neighborhood, you know, passive means of transportation may become more prominent. Um, But this was kind of the first time it got broken down where it was actually analyzed at these different levels. Yeah. I thought that that was really interesting to to do that sort of further deeper analysis, I thought was, um, and, and really yielded some valuable information. So I was thinking, you know, I'm, I don't practice in an outpatient setting, but if I did, I would, I would probably try this with a few people and kind of see what kind of information it yields. Um, and also could be interesting to, you know, check in six months or a year and see if, as you're working with somebody and, they're getting more active and more involved. Is that translating to a change in this life space assessment tool? Right. I like that idea, Parm, because, you know, assessing people periodically over time to understand their decline in status or improvement with an exercise program, you know, you're, you know, Parkinson's is a fairly slowly progressive disease over many, many, many years. Right. So what, you know, you know, what, there might be value in administering something like this every six months or annually. And you might really then see, uh, you know, a a change in status that would, you know, lead you to probe to, you know, inquire about, um, you know, how much they're leaving the house and, uh, you know, at what frequency and, you know, how that's changed over time and and what has impacted that. Yeah. You know, why, why are they leaving less? Yeah. And, and also like, I'm just thinking of some of the people I know with Parkinson's and, and how they have progressed over the years, but I could see it also being helpful as like a fairly early indicator of like, okay, so now you're walking, you're moving a little bit less within your neighborhood could, you know, maybe it's time for some support in helping you to do that. It used to be that you would go for walks alone. Maybe now you don't feel comfortable going for walks alone. So can we get a spouse or a kid or whoever to, to sort of help to support that. So I could see how it could help sort of bring out certain aspects of mobility that are declining before, you know, you might pick something up on something like gate speed or even six minute walk test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not that we know that, but it could be, you know, it would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, in the study you know, that we're doing the randomized control trial, we have data on people at baseline three months, six months, and 12 months. So eventually we're going to be able to look longitudinally at these things. We're going to be able to say, okay, over time, in the context of an intervention anyway, you know, what do we see for changes? Yeah, well, it'll be really interesting to see if there's a change in this tool because I think that could then even further support people using it in the clinic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
you know, I do want to say a caveat here about the patients in this study. You know, anytime you do an exercise study, who yes. signs up for it? Right. You know, people who like to exercise and, you know, people who want to exercise and be part of an exercise study. So even though we try to target people who are more sedentary and, you know, in this particular study, there's a behavioral change component. And we're actually trying to recruit people who, you know, need the support and need this approach to try to exercise. But, um, you know, uh, nevertheless, you know, some people, uh, you know, may not be, you know, quite as active or in this study, they're, you know, 7,600 steps, you know, that's like, that's sort of low active, right? right. That's pretty good for Parkinson's. Right. And, you know, and so that might be higher than the general population. Yeah. And so whether these results apply to people who are, you know, more sedentary, right. you know, we don't yeah, it would be interesting to do a study like this and have the inclusion criteria be something like less than 3,000 steps per day. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the things we learn, though, about when we look at the data from the step activity monitor is there's significant or substantial, let's say, variability from day to day. And so if you look at your steps, for example, well, I mean, if you're up, if you're working in a hospital and you're up on your feet all day and you know, you go for a run in the morning that, you know, you're going to have upwards of 10,000 steps. Then another day you're sitting, um, you know, doing a podcast and, um, you know, uh, and, and you might, you know, have, you know, uh, in the sedentary range. So, I mean, you could, you might have a, a range that differs 5,000 steps from one day to another, yeah. 3,000 steps from one day to another. And so, um, you know, that's another sort of challenge when we look at, you know, how active people are is to, to understand the variability. Um, you know, uh, what we, one thing we, we, you know, we have uh, discovered and others have written about this too, Catherine Lang's group, you know, those people with higher capacity uh, tend to have more variability in their steps, mm -hmm. right? From day to day yeah. because they can vary. Right. They can do more one day and less another day. It's the people on the lower end who have less variability, probably because they have less capacity. Right. Right. And so in this, uh, you know, in this group of people we have in this study, you know, they have more capacity probably than many other people with Parkinson's disease. So we see more variability, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in what they're doing, you know, which is on the one hand, good. We get an idea across the spectrum what people are doing. But it also makes it more challenging to look at group differences over time. Yeah. Because there's such variability. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the reality is, which we say all the time, is we just need more studies, right? We just need more of this information to sort of help guide our practice. I'm all for it. Yeah. You know, more, more funding and I'm happy to do the studies. <laughs> <laughs> and more people like Jenna. <laughs> That's right. More more trainees gonna come up and and uh, you know take over, start doing the the next studies for the next generation. Yeah, definitely. All right, you guys. Well, I think this has been a really great conversation. Um, I want to thank you for joining us and thank the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy for um, putting us together on this topic. I thought it was super interesting, and hopefully, our listeners will get something out of it, and maybe a few will try that life space assessment and let us know how it goes. We would love to hear. 
Um, we do, before we sign off, like to sort of quickly ask people what they like to do when they're not working. Um, so Jenna, let's start with you when you're, you know, not behind a computer analyzing data. What is it that you like to do? Yeah, uh, I love hiking. I would say I am like a huge hiker. Like I um, grew up in New York, so have hiked in like the Adirondacks a ton. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done some out here too, but I usually try to get there on the weekends in the fall when I can. Nice. Yeah. We don't know anything about hiking here (laughs) and we all love it. Everybody loves it, but it's, it is, it's great. Right. Especially in the fall. Mm -hmm. All right. And Terry, how about you? Uh, I love hiking too. I just don't get to do it as much as I would like. Uh, but the cycling, I do a lot. So I love the cycling and, you know, especially in the, this weather right now in the, you know, September in new England, it's a great time to cycle. So I'm all over that. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Always great to be part of this group. And I want to just put a plug in for JNPT. Get out there and read those papers. It's an awesome journal. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for doing this, guys. Great job. Thanks for joining us. And special thanks to our guests today, Dr. Jenna Zajac and Dr. Terry Ellis. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Rebecca Martin, Adriana Carey, Casey Burris, and I am Harm Paget. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a colleague today. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. Sorry, sidebar. You can edit that out. And you know what, Jenna? Keep yourself unmuted because I think now that we've been talking, we're just kind of bringing Terry into the conversation. We're not like excluding you. We're not going to like, we're not dropping you. Just in case you haven't noticed, her initials are Jay-Z. That we have a hammock garden. So we do go outside in our yard. All right. You know what? I think I'm going to administer the light space tool with you and just see like kind of what's <laughs> happening over there. <laughs> you went from not knowing us to knowing probably TMI. <laughs>